Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to this week's episode of Prestige, a podcast for people who love movies, by people who love movies. I'm Sam, I'm an academic and writer, I've lectured in universities, taught in schools and currently work in a sixth form college. He's Rob, he's a podcaster, editor, author, one of whose many, many careers saw him travel the world for nearly a decade as part of the movie business. Essentially, I know how things work in theory, and he knows how things work in practice. And we bring these two perspectives to our discussions of the films on which we focus. Films you might know, films you're not going to know, and films you do know but haven't never quite got around to watching. We take a different movie each episode, and as well as short reviews, we talk about the cultural, theoretical, historical significance of each and we end with recommendations linked to the episode's film in some way, and we start briefly talking about what else we've been consuming media-wise. So, Rob. So I have been on a real kick recently about movies. I was really trying to crack through a lot of really good ones. So I'm going to rush through these in a series of short reviews, shall we say, rather than one big in-depth review. Starting from the worst to the best, let's say. Uh, I've watched a film called Zombievers, <laughs> which is about a group of horny, horny co-eds who end up at a rural cabin where they are attacked by a gang of zombie beavers. I enjoy a bad movie. I enjoy a cult movie. This film was shockingly terrible from day one. I got half an hour in and I quit with one and a half stars. I watched Looker, which is a Michael Crichton 80s movies. Very interesting, very weird, prescient sort of stuff about media manipulation. It's very 80s, but I liked it a lot. Moving into good films I've seen recently, I watched... Ad Astra, which is a Brad Pitt-fronted science fiction movie from a few years ago, which is beautiful and sad and heartwarming and crushing at the same time, and I would heartily recommend everyone try and see it if they can. I watched the 1999 film Rebels of the Neon God, which is a Taipei set slow cinema about the people who live in around the deserted areas in Taipei. It is... One of the best films I've seen in a long time, and I'm now on a kick to watch everything by the director who's... I'm going to, I think it's called Tai Ming Liang. That's probably absolutely butchering of the name. I'm very sorry. I'd love to hear how it's pronounced. But it's just about hoodlums and kids who live on the street and all of that. It's just a really beautiful film. And the film of the moment that I have watched is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is on Netflix currently. Is that good? Yes. Right. That's all I'm going to say. It's a very hard film to talk about without getting into spoilers really, really fast. Right. I will say it is one of the most sad and depressing films I've seen since Aniara. It is very good. It is very confusing. It is not a film that gives you any kind of easy answers and you've got to think at it and work at it and try and work out what's going on. But it is good. But don't think you're going in for a 
hijinks based comedy because you're very very much not mm-hmm. it is worth seeing it is worth seeing in one sitting and it is worth seeing in a way in which you can watch what's going on because it's not a film you can background does that make sense mm. um, but I do recommend seeing it if you haven't seen it but yeah it, it is not for everybody this is no judgement like Charlie Kaufman films are not for everybody if that isn't your kind of thing that's totally cool I enjoyed it but I'm not sure it's a really hard film to talk about mm. without spoilers and maybe if Sam does see it at some point we'll do a little mini episode talking about it because I'd be very interested to talk about Sam's theories on it yes it is based on a book, so I'd be really interested in Sam's thoughts, but I will leave it at that. It, it is a recommendation, but with caveats. Right. Good. Well, well, you've been watching all the films, and I haven't had the brain power for anything. Um, term started this week, or last week, so I haven't been in a position to watch anything at all. And when we sit down to watch TV, I want something that is really not going to test me. I think even Great British Bake Off will be too high octane. Um, so we've been watching this week The Big Flower Fight, which is um, it's very much in the mould of Great British Bake Off, actually. And I mean, this, this won't be true for you, Rob, but I have never been good at nor interested in baking so I very much watch Great Bitch Bake Off as an outsider this is I mean this is even further outside of my wheelhouse like great big flower fight when have I ever been good in the garden ever Um, it's just it's just lovely to look at and gentle and people are nice to each other and wear ridiculous clothes and it's just fun. So just sit down and watch it and turn, let your brain turn to mush. What a recommendation. Yeah. I have n- nothing um, highbrow at all to talk about this week. That's also absolutely fine. You know, I appreciate, you know, I will say my review did cover Zombievers as well as, you know, I'm thinking of anything. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, okay. <laughs> I scrape that barrel myself sometimes. As I mentioned at the start there, we are currently going through a series looking at heist movies through the years. And we're now in our sixth episode of that mini-series, and we are looking at the 1981 movie Thief. Christ in life. Just diamonds of cash. they got to be big scores. they got to be fast. How big? Box cut. Not the six figures. We know you got something major coming down. We are on. James Gunn, Thief, rated R. Thief is a neo-noir thriller, I suppose, uh, telling the tale of Frank, played by James Kahn, who is a successful um, and mostly unknown jewel thief. Um, he's an ex-con. He runs a business being a bar owner and a car salesman, but on the side is a jewel thief. He has a partner and people he work with, but he soon gets caught up with the mob and becomes part of that and working for a local mob boss. This change in his life leads him to open up more as a family man, I suppose, and he gets married and adopts a son through his connections in the, in the mob. And he gets sent on one last, one in his mind, one last big heist 
to uh, steal some diamonds on the west coast the movie is full of twists and turns and betrayals and backstabs and we will tour all of those so from this point onwards consider it a spoiler filled review now sam michael mann wrote this he directed it and he's gone on to do some very great action heist movies over the years how did you find his first foray into this genre he has and i really liked it I could see how he was cutting his teeth and some of his later work is a development of that, but I still really enjoyed this. And talking about spoilers, let's not go with spoilers, I'm just thinking right at the very beginning how brilliantly it starts. It just starts very abruptly. Um, You mentioned earlier how You'd watch Looker and it was a very 80s film. There's something very 80s and very almost music video. Not in a, I'm not being dismissive at all, but in the, the, the music and the lights and the alleyways at the beginning and the smoke and the car moving through the wet streets at night, it felt very like a music video and I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed the extent to which that felt like a bit of a throwback so yes I I did enjoy it I enjoyed it very much from the start of that starting point was all about style Mm. and not in a I mean you can sometimes say that in in quite a, a flippant way but it didn't feel like I'm not dismissing it at all to say that I just feel like star was really important to michael mann at the beginning so. yeah i i would absolutely agree and i think like the shift from the sting to this is eight years and everything in the world in many ways yes. um this film is very much in that noir-esque world of anti-heroes and dames and set in the modern day rather than sort of the old noir period but it is it, the whole thing is shot at night really isn't it the whole thing, I mean, there are occasional, there are scenes obviously in daytime, but everything is shot in industrial states, in grime, in back alleys, under moonlight, under neon. It is so totally in that world, you know. Like, he has meetings with his metallurgist in, like, what appears to be like a, a just a bo- metal box somewhere. It, it, everything in this movie sells the grime and dirt of this world. Yes. And I would say, even. A film like Seven, which mm. feels dark and feels sort of, yeah, they're raining all the time, but this feels similarly dark, even in scenes which don't place it, don't take place in the dark. Even the the house at the end, which is, I mean, inside and there are lights in in the rooms, and yet even so, it's dark when he. When he knocks out the guy with the fridge, it, there's something very claustrophobic about that. Those final scenes of him moving through the house. But that, in many ways, that's the world. Like the world is obviously visually dark and grimy, but that's the world they live in as well. Like they are bad people. That mm. um, they are criminals and they are robbers. And yes, they get mixed up with worse people. And we talked previously about how heist movies can very often come out as the good guys because they're going up against worse guys yeah um and there's a lot of that in this movie um but it is 
so very much of that. The world they live in is grimy. The world is backroom deals and favours for friends and violence and threats of violence. And in many ways, it's weirdly kind of, I don't know, what it's almost kind of like an old tragic play of this character who is just slowly step by step dragged down into hell mm. at the start not saying he was happy he wasn't happy he was a frustrated man child with no sense of adulthood but he does achieve an element of family in this and then that is slowly and slowly just pulled from him and the deals he makes every little thing he gives up every little thing he changes which he thinks is for the best he thinks is for the right choice is the thing that damns him the people he gets in bed with are the thing that damn him. And whilst the ending is, I suppose, slightly hopeful. Yes. It's it's a hard thing to pitch because he has he has lost his wife. He's lost his son. He sent them away. And there's no indication he's going back to them. He's lost his mentor. He's lost his best friend. It is, you know, it is the ultimate and just kind of like minor victories he clawed back at the end. But he does claw back. And I think... This to me was the the overarching theme of the movie was the idea of honor. That in amongst this dirt and grime, Frank mm. was a man with honor. And whilst he got lost in the you know in the in the maze of it for a little bit, the act he does at the end by protecting his wife, by protecting his son, albeit in a unpleasant way, and avenging his friend, is him reclaiming that honor he yes. had. I was thinking, you mentioned this idea of honour to me, and I was just, I was thinking about it when, um, that scene with the policeman where Frank gets beaten up, and he, he has that look in his eye, which, uh, well, and it may be the look of someone who's been in prison, or it may be the look of, well, I suppose it's all, it's all bound up together. This is a a man who... Is is fine with that beating, and he's like, you know what? I know this is going to happen. Bring it on. And there's something of that, like he he behaves honourably there. There's something, he's got this internal code, and he knows he's mm. following that code, and he he knows he's going to get beaten up, just like he, he knew he was going to get beaten up in prison. He just he he knows what to expect, and he's seen. So almost, almost happy with that. That is the internal code of honour he's got, and that he, at the end of the day, can face himself and go, "I followed my honour code." And that is—I'm trying to think mm. of the word for it. I don't know what the word for it is, but it's that kind of Dante's Inferno-esque element that he gives up these. He gives up his code. He betrays his code. He changes the way he works to get things. And he goes into bed with people who knows aren't very good to get what he wants, be it a wife, be it a son. And those are the things that then pull him down. And at the end, he's reclaimed that. He's reclaimed his honour. He's reclaimed his code. It's very weird, but it made me think a lot of Ron Swanson. Yes. In that if anyone's seen Parks and Rec, everybody has, Ron Swanson is a man with a very clear and self-derived set of codes and honours. I'm watching currently. It's wise in my head. But he has that and there's a similar link here. This is a man who has been through the grinder. He was raised by the state. He went through prison. He was taken under the wind of Willie Nelson and has come out with this code and this self-assurance. But also, in many ways, this kind of weirdly juvenile dream of the future. Mm. He has this picture of, of like the future he wants. And it's, you know, it's family. It's 
cookouts. It's all of that. And part of me is like, I understand that you want that, but it feels like a very intellectual want rather than a, a real want. You know, he's still running a bar and a dealership and still robbing banks. Yes. His relationship with Jesse. It's true and it's heartfelt, but it also seems kind of on a whim and it feels like it's born out of his loneliness. Mm. Um, the second this woman is interested in him, he pours out everything to her. That felt really strange to me because this huge gear change. And you have the first you know, 25 minutes, which is like an extended music video from the 80s. It's like it's like flash dance with the, with the cars and and mm, nice shoes mm. and, and then suddenly you have him in this diner with Jesse after a, a minor moment of abuse or after that. Um, but you you have this scene with Jesse in which he just tells her everything about himself and pours everything out, and suddenly the film becomes something completely different very quickly. I think that comes back to Frank's deep need for family. He's, he's a lonely person, you know. He was very post eight, as he said. He didn't have family. He found it a little bit with Okla in prison as a pseudo father figure, and Barry is like his brother, I suppose. And there's a line from Leo, the mob boss: "I'll be your father. Let me be your father, and I'll help you." Mm. And the this promise of family that he has with all these people, and the feeling that he's getting something, but of the bottom line, they aren't family. They're people who work with him. And I think that's why he has this real outpouring with Jesse, because in his mind, he's, he's achieved that thing he wanted, which was a partner, which is a wife. Mm. And they are obviously both broken people, and they're both damaged people in their own way, and they work as a couple. But and that, for me, feels like the, the wonderful dichotomy and attention in this movie is you've got this man, Frank, who is so talented and so driven and so constant and so honourable in his work. And that's balanced against this other man who can make terrible decisions in his personal life. He's desperate for some sort of connection. His push and pull between those two things and his drive to have those connections are what, in the film's view at least, make him vulnerable to equation. Yes, and it, you mentioned Ron Swanson as one touchstone. And something else I was thinking was that Bizarre, there's something almost like a samurai about him. Mm. Like, and I'm not thinking about sort of a heroic vision of us. I'm thinking like one, one of the films that we saw a couple of scenes ago, and, and so like the some like Drunken Master, where he has he has a flaw to him, or Arichi from much earlier on, but he he's he's destined to fail but there is something internally very honourable and with Frank it is this idea of family and belonging and settling down and yet that gets undermined and eroded very quickly by something that is similarly integral to him. Absolutely. As much about Absolutely. I think that's, that, for me, is the, the heart of this movie and that's why this movie, to me, stands out against a world of other forgettable crime movies mm. is that James Kahn embodies that real tension of being like focused and hardworking and driven against also being lonely and broken and wanting family and wanting connection. And that's what humanizes him more. I mean, you can look at Michael Mann's um, career and there's a famous line from heat of never have anything in your life. You aren't willing to walk away from in five minutes. Mm. And that feels like a distillation of this movie, 
clearly see the links with this and like Heat, which oddly is Michael Mann's sort of maybe biggest heist movie. And there are echoes through that to this. And it does feel like it's taken that forward and refined it down because it is the attachment that makes him weak. There's a speech from Leo. And like, I do want to sidebar a little bit in that the character of Leo played by Robert, I think, Protsky. I think his first, his film debut was this movie. He swings so brilliantly from being this kind of kindly old grandpa figure to this psychotic, violent gangster so easily and so believably. Mm. The scene in which he threatens Frank having killed Barry is just an absolute masterclass in like ripping off the mask to the ugly face underneath. And it was just so, like, you believe him as this, you know, let's all have cigars and, and whiskey back at the lodge, but also this, he will destroy your family for this. And I I mentioned when we watched it, I sort of, it's sort of a con called him a Jim Broadbent like, but it's, and Jim Broadbent is a similarly incredible mm. actor. You have, like, in sort of Bridget Jones' diary, he's the lovable buffoon of the father. And then you have something like, Hot Fuzz, where you think, oh, oh, that's what he can be. And it was that mm. that idea that he can turn from the grandfather figure into the terrible, violent crime lord very quickly. Absolutely. And that kind of genteelness that underlies this ability to inflict pain, I think it just really nailed that world because he is still in this world. And all the wood panel effect and soft lighting of his home isn't going to undercut the fact that he is a violent mob boss. Mm. And he has his code. And we may not like his code, but his code is my way or the highway. And you very much feel that he will see through all his threats. Yes. His honour is obviously broken and perverted, but compared to Frank's. But it still is a code of honour of like, I will do what I say. Mm. And you believe it. I did want to mention before we close, the, the fact that there are no words in the heist and it feels like this is something mm. that's been taken from Rafifi and this is something that works in heist films. And actually it's more, in thinking back other films I've watched, this is more common than I thought. These sort of silent, oh, I suppose in, in Rafifi it's taken extreme, there's no soundtrack, but this idea of, okay, we have to get down to some serious work now. There's no talking. Very much so, I think. And there's a lovely shot I really like in the big heist, in the big heist in the West Coast, when they have their long poles with their cut in there, and he kind of sits back and has this yeah. weird sort of smile on his face. And that's a real moment of just like, it felt like an artist seeing their art. Yes. Lean back and like, yeah. that's good. I'm done. That's, 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 that's a good job. Well done. And that feels so true to him in the same way you see him hanging out with, with Jesse watching and relaxing together with their, with their son like there's real warmth to that there's as much paternal love that you see from Frank watching a hoist go well mm. as there is seeing him be a dad I have a question for you there's kind of lingering shots around his house after he kicked out his wife and son and I, I wondered what that reminded me of and I wondered if you knew what it was. The only thing I think of is it happens in Breaking Bad, but this montage of nothing happening in order to build tension, mm. and maybe there's there's soundtrack going on, but there, there are shots of nothingness as you move around a place. And it kind of reminded me of something. I don't know what it was. Can't place a recollection or an echo from somewhere else, but for me it felt like, like it was him paring himself back down to where he was. Yes. It was about yeah. him 
giving up these worldly possessions, going back down to just being frank, just being the skinny, scared kid on the streets who fought his way into where he was. All the empty shots about him be just becoming frank again, rather than frank the dad, frank the husband, frank the business. But he was just frank, mm. back to being the person he was in prison. Yeah. That's how I read it. But I say, it's one of those things you probably see it more often than not about someone clearing house, tidying up their life, ready to move on. Yes. A real sense of, okay, well, I'm alone now. Mm. This is what the film is saying at this point. Do you have some recommendations for us? Yeah, well, my first recommendation, you kind of talked about it already. I do feel that we need to properly recommend Michael Mann's Heat, mm. which is... It's, it's one of the best crime films ever made. It's also one of the best films I've made. It's just phenomenal. And it's another one that has a particular aesthetic to it. It's a very stylish film, film of style, um, starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. It's just brilliant. If you haven't seen Heat, do go see it at once. And my second one is, well... It's another. I, I know we've done it before on the podcast, but I want to mention Rollerball because watching this made me remember just how brilliant an actor James Caan is. Like you were talking about that that combination of um, family mentality and also a terrible criminal identity that goes with it that, that you see in his face of everything um, displayed in his face and th- there was that that ability to encompass so many things really struck me about James Gunn and I wanted to focus on Ball as another film in which he presents a complex figure not quite as complex as in Thief but certainly it's, it's a very good performance I thought you were going to mention one of my recommendations earlier, but we luckily didn't get that far. So I wanted to recommend the 99 crime movie Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, which I think a film I've probably recommended more than once on here. But it's Jim Jarmusch film starring Forrest Whitaker as Ghost Dog, who is a mob hitman who lives by the code of the samurai. And the film has that same feel of a man with a code who is brought low by his connections. It is as tragic a story as Thief is in its own way. It is a very 90s movie, and I mean that in the good and the bad ways, but it has that same kind of feeling of being a gritty crime movie about a man with honour coming up against bigger men with their own honour and how those two honours clash together. My other recommendation is Mrs Doubtfire. A sidestep, tonally, obviously, but I have sung the praises a few times here of Robert Prosky, who played Leo. He also pops up in Mrs. Doubtfire as Robin Williams' boss, the head of the network, Mr. Lundy, who is the person who he tries to win over and get his show going at the end of it. I genuinely had to double-check because he's so light in Mrs. Doubtfire, he's so funny, he's so a wildly different character. But it's a movie that I really, really love and a film that from my childhood that I absolutely adored. And... It's a chance for me to recommend it. I think he's very, very good in Thief and also very, very good in Mrs. Doubtfire. Rob's mentioned that we're making our way through heist films. We are moving into the next, the the greatest decade of all, (laughs) 1990s, with the 1995 film The Usual Suspects. 
one of the films, if I thought correctly, that Sam and I first bonded over back in our teenage years. Yeah. And so it'd be interesting. I probably haven't seen it in 15, 20 years. So I'd be very interested to go back and watch that. I don't think I have either. Till then, guys, you can find both of us online at Pashti Podcast. You find just me at life underscore academic. And you can find me at Kaiju FM. Guys, I want to say thank you for those of you who have left the ratings and reviews for us. We've seen a little uptick of them recently, and that's really nice. If you do like our show, we would really appreciate a rating review wherever you listen to podcasts. I know you can do it on iTunes or Google or Spotify or Podchaser. We'll put some links in the show notes. But if you do like the show, please give us a review. Please give us a recommendation. It really helps us kind of get ourselves out there and spread around a bit more. So uh, thanks for that. And we're back here in two weeks. Thank you.